Hey, great to see you today. I uh, hope you're glad to be in God's house today and tonight at Replicate. I hope to see many of you back uh, tonight for that five o'clock event. Just before we get into the message today, let me say that we begin a new message series next Sunday morning for about seven weeks. And I think we have a graphic that we want to put on the screen called Comeback Season and the God Who Makes It Happen. Now, this doesn't have anything to be, do with football. I know there's a picture of a football helmet there. I know some of you get a stirring in your heart and uh, flutter in your stomach, you know, about your favorite team. We won't be talking about Baylor or Texas University or uh, A&M or any of those schools, even OU. We won't even talk about OU or Dallas Cowboys. But the bottom line is all of us at different times are at comeback seasons in our lives where we need God to make something happen in our life. We're starting with the story of Moses, who is on the backside of the desert for 40 years before God calls him back to help set God's people free. We'll end that series with the life of Peter who denied Jesus three times and then on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus gave him a comeback season and he became the preeminent of the apostles. All of us need a comeback at some time in our lives and God uses people that he brings back over and over again. So next week we start that, invite someone to come with you and uh, be ready next Sunday as we uh, get back into a series and we're gonna really enjoy it. I believe it'll be life-changing. Today I wanna talk to you about about your prayer life and I wanna talk to you about being desperate. Today's title of the message is Desperate Prayer. And as we begin to think about those words for just a few moments, I want you to think about a man whose name is somewhat familiar to most of us and it's the name of King Hezekiah. Many of you know about King Hezekiah's life. Many of you know that he was at a place of desperation at a number of times, but the final time of desperation is a time when he's been told that he is going to die and uh, there's nothing he can do about that. So if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hezekiah for just a few moments. Book of Hezekiah. If you have book of Hezekiah open, say amen. I've been wanting to do this all my ministry, 35 years. Nobody says amen, right? Second Kings, there's no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. Some of you are looking at the table of contents right now, <laughs> trying to recover very quickly, but it's okay. No book of Hezekiah, but Second Kings is the book where the life of Hezekiah is found. Second Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse one. And you're gonna find a riveting story of a man that was brought to the place of desperate prayer. And it's going to speak to us in a powerful way today. Please stand with me as we look at these first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And again, King Hezekiah is a king, a good king, and he's in a place of desperation. Verse 1 says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now you think about how sobering of a moment that is to realize that God has declared your death through the apostle or through the uh, prophet. Verse two. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, that is after pronouncing this judgment, Isaiah is walking out of the court. And before he gets out of the middle court, the word of the Lord comes to him saying, return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your father, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. 
On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil. And he recovered. Get the gist of this. A man that's dying and God's prophet tells him he's dying. He turns his face to the wall, weeps bitterly and prays, and God relents and gives him 15 more years. Now you think about that moment of desperation that you may be facing right now. And you think about what God might be able to do in your life if he was able to do that with King Hezekiah. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to us about the life of Hezekiah, but more so speak to us about how to be desperate with prayer. Father, above all that, help us to know who you are and what this text says about you and your compassion and your mercy and your ability to hear and your willingness to hear our heart and our prayer. Father, I ask you to speak to these all over this room today. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated for just a few moments if you would. This last week, uh, I was thinking about something that I haven't thought about in a long time, and maybe it was because it's so hot outside. I was thinking about when I was younger, about 25 years of age, I was a student pastor at a church in Arlington, Texas, and we were on a ski trip uh, to the mountains in Colorado during spring break. And on that ski trip, I was driving the van with 15 people in the van, 15 passenger van. I think there were two vans in all. And I was driving one of them. We got to one of those mountain passes where uh, the road is so slick that the wheels stop moving you forward and they start spinning. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror, realizing we're not making any headway. And then we start to slide back just a little bit, look at the rearview mirror and realize we're on the precipice there. And there's a couple of hundred foot drop off the cliff. There's no guardrail and we're moving backwards. And everybody about the time I realized that, they realize that at the same time, everybody's looking backward. They're looking at me. I'm 25 years old. I have no idea what to do. And it's quiet in the van. And finally, in that van, over those next few seconds, a young man, 19 years old, said, would now be a good time to pray? <laughs> and I said, I'll keep my eyes open. You pray. Well, we made it out of there. We uh, got out of the van, relieved the weight of the van, and, and got behind it and kind of kept it from going off the cliff, made it on our way a little later. But I've never forgotten that phrase, would it be a good time to pray? It's always a good time to pray. But especially when you don't know what to do. And especially when you're desperate. I remember Ron Dunn, one of my favorite pastors, telling me a story of him doing a prayer conference talking about the importance of prayer. And a man coming up to him and saying, is it really come to that, that we have to pray and ask God to deliver us? And Ron remarked, has it come to that? It always comes to that. It's always incredibly important for people of faith to learn to put their trust in a sovereign God by prayer. Has it come to that? It'll always be at that. And you and I need to understand something about desperate prayer. I need to know, you need to know. And Hezekiah learned something about desperate prayer 
that He will teach us today. I have to tell you about this today. As I look around us in the world, around us, I have to tell you the most depressing time of my week these days are the days when I look around and see what's happening outside the walls of my home, outside the walls of our church. When I look at what's happening in our nation, in our world, it's incredible to feel the burden of a massacre like at El Paso or Dayton or somewhere else, uh, to be able to see the anarchy and the wildness that's happening all around us. We ought to be desperate for our nation to come together and to come back to God. It ought to provoke desperation in our lives. When I think about we as a church, what we're facing, where we're at, the, the challenge that's ahead of us of building these buildings, of reaching a new generation for Christ, of being in a, in a very diverse community and having language barriers to, to jump over and everything else we jump over to reach more and more for Christ, we ought to be desperate. And yet sometimes we're not. And I was thinking about why we're sometimes not desperate. You know, we ought to be about everything. I knew that earlier this year and really late last year, I knew that we were approaching a time in our church life where we would be in a season of prayer. And my sense of this whole thing about us as individuals, as leaders, as people of the body of Christ here at Cross City Church, I knew that God would be calling us to a deeper level of trust. And there's really no way to have a deeper level of trust without a deeper level of prayer. Trust and prayer go hand in hand. You can't trust God for something you're not talking to God about. And when you talk to God about things, God speaks back to you. He has a way of answering prayers and leading and guiding and, and helping us in our journey of faith because then he becomes real to us. When we're talking and when we're hearing from him, that's real, that's, that's reality, and we can walk by faith in the God who's real. We're entering into a season of prayer, and this message in part may help us be there. I have to tell you, with everything going on around us, you'd think it'd be easy to be desperate for God, be desperate for prayer, but it's not. And sometimes I wonder, why are we not more desperate for prayer? Why are we, we not more desperate for God to intervene, to step into our lives, to change something, whatever needs to be changed, to, uh, to, to transform us, whatever needs to be transformed? Why are we not more desperate for God to do that? And some thoughts that come to my mind about that that go back in my mind. Why would we not be desperate for God to demonstrate his power in new ways? Well, we're probably not desperate because we're satisfied. We're satisfied with status quo. We're satisfied with how things are. We don't ask God for more because we don't really want more. We don't really need more sometimes. Sometimes we're not desperate for God because we get distracted with other things that are far less important. At the same time, they're far more attractive to us. And so we get our minds off the important things. We don't ask God. We don't depend on God for the important things. And we just become attracted to the less important. Sometimes we're not desperate for God because we don't care. We don't have enough want to in our hearts to have that kind of a relationship or to have that kind of difference that we can make. Sometimes we're not desperate because we want to blame somebody else instead of pray to the God who can solve everything. And we want someone else to be at fault about something. Sometimes we're not desperate for God because we put too much confidence in programs and plans and spend very little time talking about what God and only God is able to do. And woe to us if that's how we approach life. So we're often left to get only what we can do without God's help. But we've seen enough of what we can do. We need to start asking God for what he can do. Would you agree with me? 
Would you agree with me that in your heart and your life, there is at least a glimmer of hunger for God's activity in your heart, for God to answer prayers that only he can answer, for him to give you wisdom that you don't have otherwise, for him to open doors that are not gonna be open and that they are supernaturally open for provision to be made that can't be made on your own by yourself, but only that God can do it by. Aren't you hungry for that? At least a little bit hungry for that? And the life of Hezekiah is an incredible lesson for what it means to get to the place of desperation. And there are several things about his life that I want to point out today. First of all, I want to point out about his life that in Hezekiah's life, there is a time to turn, a time to turn away from everything else that he has looked to for answers and a time to turn to God. In fact, the story in verse two begins to unfold with this key line in verse two. It says, then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. So the, the prophet Isaiah has come and said, you're going to die. And when a prophet comes and makes that proclamation, that's it. When you hear the prophet who's always correct, who's always accurate, and prophets in that day, if they were not accurate, they were dead. Literally, a prophet would be put to death if he did not prophesy accurately. And so Isaiah comes and says, you're going to die. The Lord says, you're going to die. And there Hezekiah is realizing the gravity of the moment. And the Bible says he turns his face to the wall and prays to the Lord. Now, before we get too deeply into this, I want you to know something about the life of King Hezekiah. If you take your Bibles and turn back two chapters, you'll see that Hezekiah was, historically speaking, an incredible king. So many good things that he did. In fact, these first seven verses of chapter 18 talk about Hezekiah's faithfulness to God, his uniqueness in the line of kings that comes before him and after him. Chapter 18, verse 1, it says about Hezekiah's life, that in verse two, it says he was 25 years old when he became king. I had trouble making a decision in a church van on a snowy mountain road at 25. I can't imagine being the king of Israel the way he was at age 25. He became king. The Bible says he reigned 29 years. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord. That's an unusual phrase for the kings of Israel. He did according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, that is the false places of worship, and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. That would be the, the idolatry that's taking place then. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent. What kind of courage would that take? Because the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness as a sign that God would come rescue his people and heal his people. And yet the people were still worshiping this bronze serpent. And he took it down and broke it into pieces. Verse five, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, not among those who were before him either. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Man, what a resume. Here's a man that's doing everything right up to this point. And he's going to have this death come upon him. Let me just remind you today, in case you didn't know, bad things do happen to good people sometimes. Bad things even happen to God's people sometimes. Even King Hezekiah, as many good things as he did, death was going to be pronounced upon him by the prophet Isaiah. And this is as personal as it gets. 
Uh, this brings this man to this place where he's looking at a wall. Now let me just tell you why he's looking at the wall. He's looking at the wall because he can't look to his soldiers. They can't rescue him. He can't look to the prophet. He's already walking out. He can't look to the doctors because they can't do anything about it at this moment. He has nowhere else to look, nowhere else to turn. There's only one thing he can do, and that is to turn to look at the wall and talk to his God. You ever had your face up against the wall before? You ever been in a place where you couldn't look to anyone else? No one else could help you. No one could rescue you. You were so desperate. You couldn't even ask anybody else to help you or give you wisdom or heal you or, or provide for you. All you could do is look to God. And you knew that you had to turn. Sometimes it's just time to turn. Sometimes it's just time to stop looking around wildly for some other rescue it's time to turn. Even this king who had all these resources, it was time to turn to God. Secondly, I want you to notice it's the time to evaluate. This is the time when Hezekiah begins to evaluate his life. Notice his prayer in verse three. The first part of that prayer says, I beseech you how I have walked before you. So Hezekiah in this prayer, this desperate prayer is saying, God, look at how I've lived my life. I want you to take that into account because I'm going to ask you to spare me. You know, desperation leads us to evaluate our own lives. You ever had that happen to you where you were desperate and you were going, what have I done wrong? Where have I gone the wrong direction? Where have I said the wrong thing? God, what did I ever do to you that was not right? Uh, where, what decision did I make that got me off track? Or what have I done right, God, that I could look back and evaluate? And so here's this man evaluating his own life and it's a pretty good evaluation by all records. He rehearses his own history of being faithful and obedient. He's looking for reasons to live. Now, we don't know everything about what's going on in Hezekiah's life. We don't know why it is he so desperately wants to live after having a successful reign as king. It could be because of family. It could be because of the mission he has on his life, some project he's involved with. We don't know. But what we do know is he's weeply, he's weeping bitterly. We know he's examining his own life. And I want to be careful here because I want you to know something about you coming to God in a moment of desperation and rehearsing your life. The thing about you and I today that's so important is that no matter how many good things we've done or how many bad things we've done, if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we pray, we pray through the name of Jesus. God does not hear our prayers because of the good things we've done, but because of the Jesus who died on the cross. That's why we come and how we come to the Lord Jesus today and to God in prayer. It's very important. You don't have, a, have to have a sparkling resume for God to answer your prayer, and aren't you glad? You don't have to have lived a perfect life and done everything right for God to hear your prayer, and aren't you glad? I said, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we have access to the God of heaven? because of the blood of Jesus. I tell you what, I'm, I'm more glad than anybody about that. We don't have to rehearse all the good things to come to God in desperation. We just have to say, God, our face is to the wall. We're calling out to you in the name of Jesus. He examined his own life. He thought through where he was, what he was doing, what was going on. But then desperation also leads us to remember God. It leads us to remember God. You know, if Hezekiah didn't believe that God could heal him after the proclamation of the prophet, he wouldn't be praying in the first place. He wouldn't be asking God in the first place because 
Above all else, Hezekiah knew God to be a supernatural God and a merciful God, a God with loving kindness who cared. He knew that about God. And Hezekiah and Isaiah have been at this place before, not the place of personal threat, but the place of national threat, where the armies from the marauding Assyrians are coming in on every side and the threat of King Sennacherib has come in the form of a letter to Isaiah and to Hezekiah. And they have prayed to the Lord and seen amazing things happen because of their desperate prayer. In fact, if you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, there is a great summary of that in the 2 Chronicles account of the second king story. These are parallel passages. But the summary of 2 Chronicles chapter 32 says it all. Listen to this prayer after this king threatens to come and the Assyrian armies have defeated every nation around them. In fact, the, the threat of Sennacherib is every other god and every other army is now gone because we've run over them all. What makes you think the God of Israel, what makes you think the armies of Israel can hold us back at all? That's what the letter they received said. The Bible says in chapter 32, verse 20, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, from the hand of all the others, and guided them on every side. Hezekiah has been here before at a place of desperation. And as he turns his face to the wall, he's remembering what God has done in the past. Now, this is the incredible and amazing account where God in the middle of the night sends an angel, one good angel who kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. I call that a good, bad angel. In fact, if you want to look at that account, it's an incredible story. In chapter 19 and verse 35 of 2 Kings, it's really interesting. Chapter 19, verse 35, that key verse there, and uh, I think it's worth reading. It says, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of Assyrians. And when the men arose early the next morning, behold, all of them were dead. Now, can you imagine Isaiah and Hezekiah are praying about the Assyrian armies coming in. God, give us wisdom so that we can strategically overcome these armies. Give our soldiers valor. Give them courage. Give them the ability and the willingness to throw their lives down to save Israel and to repel the Assyrian armies coming in. And they get up the next day after that faithful, desperate prayer and they realize the Assyrians aren't even there anymore. They're dead. Because God does not do that victory through strategy. He doesn't do it the way Hezekiah and Isaiah must have thought. He doesn't do it through the armies. He doesn't do it by any other thing. But he sends one good, bad angel that kills 185,000. And unless the children of Sennacherib rise up and kill their own father for such shame. Let me just say this today. I'm really glad I'm on the side of the Lord. Aren't you today? Number one. I'm really glad that good, bad angel is always working on our behalf. I'm glad about that. But I'm also glad that God answers prayer in ways differently than what we ask. God has a unique way. 
of answering prayers. And if we're desperate enough to depend on him, God doesn't have to do it our way. In fact, he doesn't in ways we might be stunned by, shocked by, but God does answer desperate prayers. And he did it in the life of Hezekiah and Isaiah before. And now here's uh, Hezekiah again with his face to the wall saying, God, what are you gonna do? The best advice I can give you from this story and from scripture is that when you're in desperate for prayer, you remember all God has done in the Bible. Historically, verified, even verified archeologically, God has done incredible, amazing, supernatural things for his people. And when you pray, remember, this is the God we're praying to. We're praying to the God that parted the sea and let the the people of Israel march across on dry land. We're praying to the God that, that made a rock open up in the desert and the wilderness and let his people drink, that sent manna down from heaven and fed his people. We're, we're praying to the God that can do anything. And when you're desperate, you remember the great things God has done. Sometimes I walk through the Bible when I read through it every year, a great habit for everybody to have, and many have that habit, of seeing all the times that God works against what it looks like is going to happen. Those phrases are often identified by the two-word line, but God. I love those lines. I love picking them out of Scripture because it seems like it happens so often. And so this Hezekiah knows some of those stories. You know some of those stories. When you're desperate in prayer, remember that your situation is bad, but God. I love what the gospel says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, that's in Ephesians 2. Or I love what Joseph said. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I love the, the, uh, the psalmist when he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, but God. So when you pray in a desperate prayer, be like Hezekiah. Remember what God has done in the past. Trust what God has done in the past. Remember in the character and the ability and the power of the God you pray to. Desperate prayer is a time to evaluate. It's also a time to be emptied. A time to be emptied. And this is really where I think the gist of the prayer is. Verse three continues his prayer. The last few words of this prayer and Hezekiah wept bitterly. I think this is the key. I don't want you to miss this. He wept bitterly. He was completely, desperately empty. Have you ever been empty before? Where you say, I have nothing to offer and no way to change this? God, it's just me standing in front of you, and I'm completely Desperately empty. You say, well, that's an awful uncomfortable place to be. Yeah, but it's the most likely place where God will fill you. The most likely place where God will intervene when you are desperately, completely empty. You know, salvation is like that. Do you know that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come to faith in him because we've given up hope on ourselves. In this New Testament era, after Jesus came, was crucified, was buried, rose again the third day, that all might come to salvation by faith in his name. 
It means we come to the place of saying, God, I have nothing to offer you. I'm not good enough to be perfect. I'm not religious enough to, to make a difference at all. I can't do enough good works. I can't eradicate all the bad things in my path. I don't have anything to offer you at all. I'm empty and I need you badly. That's That's essentially when those who are saved become saved because they put their faith and trust in the one who can fill their empty souls and empty lives and give them new life. You can't have new life until the old one is dead. And so when you come to that place of desperation and emptiness and you ask Christ to fill your life, that's the moment of salvation. In a very real sense, Hezekiah is giving us a glimpse of that just through his prayer. He wept bitterly. And I'm pausing because I want this to sink in just a little bit. I'm pausing because I want you to feel the impact of tears in our prayer life. About a week or 10 days ago, something was communicated by social media by uh, Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor of Tabernacle, uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle Church and an uh, incredible prophet and an incredible man of God. And there was an article about the life of King Hezekiah, and I want to read a few lines out of that. Jim Sembler writes about Hezekiah in this prayer. He prayed 22 words, and then he broke down and wept bitterly. But sometimes weeping is the best kind of praying because God understands the language of tears. Sometimes weeping is the best kind of praying because God understands the language of tears. Now, whether you're a logical thinker or an emotional thinker is beside the point. We're not even sure how Hezekiah thought. What we are sure of is that when he wept bitterly, God answered his prayer. And I think sometimes we struggle to be at that place. Now, I love this for a number of reasons. Maybe I love this so much because he prayed a short prayer and God answered it. Sometimes we think that by our much praying, God will answer. By our days and days, weeks and weeks, years and years of praying, I pray an hour, maybe God will answer my prayer. But here's a guy that prayed 22 words. And before the prophet had gotten out of the temple, he was in the main court, central court. By the time he was moving towards the door, God said, turn around and go back. I've heard his prayer. Wow. Does that speak to you today? about passionate praying, about desperate praying, about being at the place, not where you're just many in words, but where you're pouring out your heart. It's not our length of prayer, but our depth of surrender he's looking for. And I I have to tell you, surrender is harder than long minutes and hours of praying. To get to the place where you say, I have nothing and you have everything. And here's the thing, God answers. God answers before Isaiah gets out. He says, go back. I want you to tell him now something different than you told him a few moments ago. He's gonna live 15 more years. Wow. I have a question for you today too, and that question is asked uh, again by Jim Sembla and many others who read this passage. Why does God declare one thing but do another here? How is God sovereign but seemingly changes course? How does God declare, for example, judgment for the Ninevites and then holds back when they repent at the preaching of Jonah? Or why does a sovereign God who's seated on the throne say, you have not because you ask not? 
And here's what I want you to understand about this. There's only one thing that we can be confident in. And that is that desperation moments are divinely orchestrated for us to depend on God. However, why ever, we have these desperate moments in our life, whether they're of our own creation or whether they're circumstances that we just happen to walk into them. Desperation moments are divinely orchestrated for us to depend on God and the armies of Sennacherib were headed towards Hezekiah and it sat an environment where the only thing Hezekiah could do was look at the wall and call out to God. Why ever they come, however they come, they're designed to draw us closer to God and why not? Because our relationship with God is one of dependence, where we look to Him, we call out to Him, we ask Him to work in our lives instead of us doing whatever we can do. Remember Job, the righteous man, and all this comes upon him. He doesn't know the story. He doesn't know what's happening in the heavenly places. But he was desperate for God. And Job came to the place of saying that, though He slay me, though God slay me, still will I trust Him. David in the psalm says the same thing. Though he slay me, even if he lets me be put to death, still will I trust him. How about you? Do you remember desperate moments in your life? Where you cried? Where you wept bitterly? Where you cared enough to be moved beyond what you'd ever been moved before? Where you were passionate about something? Well, let me bring some hope to you. Because if you've been there, you know God hears those kinds of prayers. And if you haven't been there, it's okay to go. In fact, it's the best place to be. When I read the Bible, here's what I see over and over. I see that desperation leads to intervention through intercession. Every account of God's victories through the people of Israel in the Old Testament take place because they're brought to a place of desperation and then God intervenes. You ever heard that phrase? God is never early, or rarely early, but never late. God always comes through at the last moment. God always comes through when all hope is lost. He always comes through when, when we're so desperate that we don't know what else to do but depend on God. And I find over and over in the Bible, and I find over and over in my personal life, and I find over and over in church life, wherever I am, I found that desperation always precedes intervention through intercession. You become desperate, you learn to pray, God intervenes. That's the God we have. That's how it works often. That's a